Amen. There's something so uh, just powerful uh, during that chorus there um, when we were singing uh, and you just hear the voices of God's people just cry out to him. It's just an amazing thing to worship him. Uh, This morning uh, we are in, uh, I don't even remember what week we're in to be, no, we're in week, um, week six for our topics, week seven for time. Okay. So if that makes sense. So, uh, one of our conversations, God took two weeks and so, or went two weeks, I should say. And so, uh, this is our sixth topic or sixth conversation with God. Um, but our seventh week. And so, um, we're kind of praying about, I'm praying about, uh, what next week's going to look like. I have an idea of what we can do. Um, and so, uh, I was talking to TG about some options and so we may, uh, I'm not saying we're going to do this for sure yet because the Lord may change, uh, uh, the leading, but, uh, right now I'm thinking maybe what we'll do is set something up where, uh, during the service next week, you'll be able to actually just anonymously ask some questions that you would want to ask God. And then, uh, myself, and I didn't talk to him yet, but I'll probably have pastor Greg help me with this. Um, and so he'll be on the spot as well. Um, we'll try to answer those questions live right here in service. And so obviously some of those questions may have to get more attention. Some we may have to just honestly say, you know, and I think this is a wise thing sometimes is to say, you know, I don't know the answer to that question, but let's get into God's word and see what the word says. Um, and so I'm not guaranteeing if you have a question that you would ask God, if we continue this series next week, um, that I'm going to have the answer for you. But I'm thinking that might be what we do is maybe just open it up and just let you ask some questions. Like if you could sit down with God and ask that question, Maybe we can next week get into the word and give a form of an answer uh, to that question. And then maybe just see however many we can do in the morning. And so that's kind of what I'm thinking God is leading us to do uh, next week to kind of wrap up this series that we've been in again for a few weeks. Uh, If you've missed any of the weeks so far, uh, go online. You can check them out on our website and on our app. We've talked about a lot of different things that we would ask God questions of. Uh, Last week, we talked about why the mysterious journey. Why a journey that is marked with seemingly unknown moments where we don't really know what God's leading is in this or that way. Uh, what is God's will for my life is really what we talked about. And so we unpacked all of that last week, but we've covered other topics as well. This morning's topic uh, is one of those topics that, again, it's been a, a while that I've been putting this together. And this is a topic that came to my mind a while ago that I, we didn't cover in the last one in 2020. And it was one that I kind of wrote on the list. And I said, okay, next time we do this, this is one we're going to get to. And it's a topic that may be uncomfortable for some of you. It may be a topic that uh, you have a lot of emotion wrapped up in this topic. You may have your very clear beliefs in this topic. You may have an idea of what you very much believe either the word of God teaches about this or what you've been taught the word of God teaches about this. And that may not be a hundred percent accurate. Um, so there's a lot to this. And so again, as I've said all along, we're not going to give an exhaustive in-depth every single verse that talks about this area to you this morning. What I want to do this morning is give you a basic teaching of what God's word says about this. If we were to ask God about this topic, what would he say to us? Give you some scripture, some basic principles, and then let you dive into God's word and begin to seek God's word and ask, okay, what does the Bible really say about this? And that's how we're answering all of these questions. We say, if I could sit down with God and have coffee, what I want to ask him about this topic What would he say about that? Well, we have some answers because the word of God is the word of God. Amen. It is given to us to teach us and instruct us. So this morning, this topic, there are some things in scripture that are very clear, kind of black, white things. 
there's also a level of personal conviction and personal liberty in Christ that needs to be understood as well. And so I'm going to give you some basic principles, but then I encourage you as well to know that there are some areas where personal conviction will come into play and what God is leading you in for where you are and the decision you make in regards to this topic. And I'll also share just briefly uh, my own experience with this in my life. And so the question that we're asking this morning is, what would God say in regards to drinking alcohol? What would God say in regards to drinking alcohol? And this is a conversation that maybe you've had with family members or friends. Maybe you've thought through this in your own Christian life. If you've, maybe you've grown up in church and maybe your denomination or your uh, church background taught you one thing. And maybe you transitioned to a different denomination or a different background. And maybe you have family members that are in other denominations and they have a completely different view than you had in their church understanding and their background. And so what does the Bible say about drinking alcohol? Now, this also reminded me of when I was a youth pastor. When I was in youth ministry, um, I heard this question quite often from the teens. And it was easy when it was in youth ministry because I said, don't worry about it. You're too young. So that was, that was I mean, you ain't got to worry about it because you're 16 years old. But the reason they were asking the question, these are the same kids that usually ask, like, what do you think about getting tattoos? What do you think about going to the movies? What do you think about dating? Um, and the reason they were asking these questions is because their parents obviously gave them some kind of a boundary that they were coming to the youth pastor. So the youth pastor would say the opposite of what the parents were saying. And then that teenager can go back to the parent and say, well, you know, the youth pastor says. And so I always started with this. I, well, if it was the drinking thing, that was easy. But I would always ask him, what do your parents say about this? Well, I, you know, I, well, no, no, tell me, what do your mom and dad think about this? And dating was really easy. Well, my parents don't think I should date until this age. What do you think? I think you should submit to the authority of your parents and honor your mother and father. And they would look at me kind of, well, what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says you should submit to your parents. You should honor your mother and father. No, no, no. What does the Bible say about dating? Don't worry about what the Bible says about dating. Focus on honoring your mother and father. That's where we need to go. And then usually what I would do is either encourage the parents, hey, they have questions on this. I would talk to the parents a little bit, share with them what the Bible says about those things, and then hopefully work together there. But this is one of those areas for me that is, is interesting because I grew up in a non-Christian home. And so I, I grew up in a home where, and I, I'm going to sit down, so again, hopefully it doesn't bother you. Um, but I grew up in a, Christian, a non-Christian home where alcohol was a very negative part of my childhood like extremely destructive. Um, my mother was a alcoholic uh, in every sense of the word. Um, she also tended a bar. Uh, when she wasn't at the bar drinking, she was at the bar working. And we're not talking about, you know, bars maybe where they're, you know, kind of more social settings. These are bars that you'd call maybe like hole-in-the-wall bars. And if you're familiar with that lifestyle, you know what I mean by that. Um, you walk into the bars, and, and when I was 13 and 14, I would go to the bars with her because uh, she was older, and I just wanted to make sure she was safe. And so I, I was very exposed to all of this. I mean, being at the bars until 2 in the morning with her, and these bars were full of guys named, you know, Hook and Killer and, you know, guys with leather jackets and very questionable pasts. Um, and just it was just not good environments. Um, saw lots of violence. I saw the very worst that alcohol can do to someone. And uh, one of the, and I could tell you many stories, and I won't, I won't go into all of that, but 
one of the moments that I really realized the, the influence it had over my, my mom. And, and praise God, um, I came to Christ when I was 16, so 1998. Um, about a year before that, she gave up alcohol and rededicated her life to the Lord. And so I didn't know that the, giving her life to the Lord thing, I didn't know that until later. But um, so when she was, in 1997, she gave up alcohol and she just quit cold turkey and gave all the credit to God and all the glory to God. And, and God changed her life from that point. Um, she passed in 2007. In those last 10 years of her life, man, she was on fire for the Lord and she lived for the Lord. And so I praise God for that experience because all I knew of her was literally from the time, my earliest memories of her up until 15 years old was just alcohol and the consuming nature of that. Um, I remember as I was a kid waking up, you know, five or six years old and there'd be some guys that were supposed to be watching us passed out on the floor in our living room, you know, and just that stepping over people to go to the bathroom and just, it was just, that's just how my childhood was. And I remember when I was about 13 years old, uh, it was about two in the morning and my mom was going off about something and she, uh, was yelling at me about something and my stepdad was there and he was trying to get me out of the situation. And, um, I was trying to talk to her, but I realized you can't talk to people when they're intoxicated. You really can't. Um, They don't understand. Um, And she was in the kitchen, and our kitchen was a long kitchen, and the dining room was right there. And I was standing in the doorway to the dining room, and she happened to be in her coffee pot, and she grabbed the craft, and she just chucked it as hard as she could at me. Now, thankfully, she missed, right, and she hit the wall near me. But that was the moment I was like, this isn't the same person that I know during the day. It's just a totally different person. And so I say all of that, why? Because I want you to know, when you talk to people about this topic, Some people have no issue with this topic. Some people, it's nothing for them. Their background is in no way, shape, or form hindered by this topic. It doesn't bring any negative emotions or or things to mind. But some people you talk with, there's a lot in this conversation. And I say all that to say this. When you come to a conclusion on this topic and what you believe God is leading you in, please be compassionate to those that you talk to about this because you have no idea the things they've gone through. And I'm not saying me, God has given me a piece about this. I have, I don't get mad when people talk to me about it. It's a very easy thing for me to talk about now, but that issue has always stirred up in me that memory of that time. And it's made me feel a compassion for people that are either addicted to alcohol. And we'll talk about that in a little bit here or consumed by any addiction Because I don't think people realize when they're 21 and 22 and 23 and they start down that road of cultural social drinking, I don't think many of them have the mindset that I'm going to become a raging alcoholic by the time I'm 40. Nobody wakes up in the morning and decides that, right? We understand that. And so what does the Bible say about this? We all have our personal views. I have my own personal background. Uh, My personal conviction, just so you know where I stand on this, um, I have zero desire or interest in consuming alcohol. I don't need it. I don't want it. I have no interest in it whatsoever. Not that I think if I took a drink, I'd become an alcoholic, but because I've seen what it can do. And for me, where I'm at with the Lord, I I just don't need that in my life. I don't want that in my life. I've seen the worst that alcohol can do to drive apart families and cause hurt and literal violence. I heard somebody say one time, if you take a good marriage and you introduce alcohol, that marriage doesn't necessarily get better, but it almost always will get worse. Now, that may not be true for you, 
But in my experience, working and seeing in ministry, what happens, more often than not, people make really bad decisions when they're under the influence of something, not when they're sober. I mean, think about it. How many times have you heard of stories of people committing crazy acts and you read the story and go, oh, yeah, they were, they were drunk. They were intoxicated. So does that mean, does that mean the Bible says we can't have anything to do with any form of alcohol? Or again, is there some kind of a black and white command that then leads to biblical principles that guide our liberty and our personal convictions? And so let's dive into what does the Bible say about alcohol? What would God say about alcohol? So I want to go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. Very familiar verse. Ephesians 5 and verse 18. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, there are some Bibles in the seats in front of you. If you're using one of those, you can just turn to page 826. 826. So Ephesians chapter 5, one of the simplest verses that I could start with this morning to give us a baseline for what the Bible says about alcohol. Ephesians 5 and verse 18. I love hearing the pages of God's word turn. It's just, it's amazing. If you're using a device, don't be offended. I'm sure you're scrolling there. I just can't hear it. Well, I'm in the Bible too, preacher. Okay, good. All right, 518. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the with the Spirit. Let's pray for God's wisdom this morning. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we ask that you'd give us clarity and understanding. Lord, as I've already said, I know for many in this room or those watching online, Lord, this topic brings up many different emotions, many different memories or experiences. Some here, Lord, have no issue and, and no negative connotation to this whatsoever, but there are those in this room or those watching online, Lord, have maybe have seen the destructive nature of this when it's let loose in someone's life with no control. Maybe somebody here has lost a loved one to something dealing with alcohol. And Lord, for that, we are extremely sympathetic and compassionate and we understand. So Lord, I pray that they would know that you are with them in that. And so, Father, I just pray that you would just give us wisdom and guidance. Father, for the one here today, or maybe more, that as we're going to talk about this substance of alcohol has a controlling nature over their lives. They've given themselves to it, and they know. When they really sit with you in, in the silence of those moments, they know that it has more power over them than they want, than what should be. And so I pray that as only you can, that you'd give us your wisdom and your understanding, that we would know that there is, there is hope, there is grace, there is victory in Christ, that nothing has overtaken us, that you cannot give us the power to overcome. And so I pray that you would work in and through all of this, Lord, give us wisdom and guidance again, Lord, as I continue to pray that, that we would honor you in our lives. Lord, in our first week of this whole series, we talked about living a life of being a good steward, being a good manager of the life you've given to us. You've entrusted to us this life. And the things that we eat, the things that we drink, and the things that we do are all intended to honor you. 
to glorify you. We glorify you in all these areas. And so, Lord, I pray that we this morning would have open hearts and open minds, desiring to hear from you, willing to ask ourselves the tough questions so that we might honor you. And again, Lord, where we fail, as we all do, myself included, we all fall short. May we know there is grace to pick us up, to strengthen us, to lift us out, and just plant our feet on that solid rock that is you, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, again, thank you for all of this. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do we glean from Ephesians 5.18? Well, no matter your view on alcohol, what you've been taught, there's a very clear command here. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. Be not drunk with wine. Be not drunk with wine. Now, we can understand, and we're going to talk about in Scripture, if you're taking notes, drunkenness is a sin. To be drunk to willingly intoxicate ourselves to the point of drunkenness is a sin, according to Scripture. There's no debate on this. You cannot argue from Scripture that drunkenness is okay, regardless of the situation or the circumstance. And so drunkenness is a sin. But why does Paul compare these two things? I mean, let's be honest. If you read this, you think those are two really weird things to combine together, drunkenness and filling of the Spirit. Why would Paul do this? Why would Paul compare and contrast these two things? Some have suggested that Paul was saying that in the same way alcohol is, is a controlling substance, right? We're under the influence of alcohol. Therefore, it, it leads us and it guides us and we make decisions based on the fact that alcohol is consuming us. And so some have said in a similar way, like don't let alcohol be that controlling force, allow the spirit to be that controlling force in your life that leads you and guides you. So don't be under the influence of alcohol, be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, I will say there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that application. I understand it. I get it. And up until just recently, I kind of believed that was really where Paul was going. But the more I researched this and the more I read the passage in context, I've come to think maybe that's not the best way to understand this passage, understand what Paul is saying here. Yes, we should be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this filling here, uh, don't think of it as a filling of a glass. Think of it as the filling of a sail. The way the wind fill, fills a sail and pushes and guides that ship along, in the same way we are filled with the Spirit, He is guiding us, He is directing us and leading us. And so there's, obviously that's a good thing. We should desire to be filled with the Spirit continuously. We're indwelt with the Spirit at the moment of salvation, praise God, and sealed unto the day of redemption. You cannot lose your salvation because of His sealing. But this feeling, filling is an ongoing leading and guiding of the Spirit that we all should desire. And so what is Paul getting at here when he combines that with this idea of drunkenness? Again, it's, it's applicable to say, yes, we should be under the influence of the Spirit. But could Paul be driving at something more, something in the culture, something in the context that we see clearer? I believe what Paul's getting at here is dealing with a religious issue. An issue of worship is what he's talking about. You see, in the Greek and Roman world or the Gentile world of Paul's day, alcohol was used in their pagan worship practices. Uh, due to the people being so intoxicated, these Gentiles, that were not worshiping Christ, they were just giving into pagan idolatry, being so intoxicated, they would lose their inhibitions and give into all sorts 
of sinful practices in the name of their gods. So to fully worship their gods, they would have to become so intoxicated, so drunk, that they would then be okay with doing the things that they were encouraged to do. And so Paul saying, there's two ways to worship God. There's this pagan, Gentile way that you're familiar with, but then there's a biblical way to worship God. And I believe he's making a distinction here. If you're curious, for time's sake, I can't go into all of this, but if you're curious, you can study and research. And again, there's parts of this that I don't want to share from the stage as far as things they would be involved in. Um, And so again, this would be for you if you so desire to look into this, um, that the way they would worship certain gods, and one specific god would be a Greek god named Dionysus. And Dionysus was the Greek god of wine. Because wine and alcohol and intoxication were such a part of worshiping this God. I mean, there's a crazy long story about how this God came to be. It is the most ridiculous thing you'll ever read, but it's there. And this is what these people would worship. And they would believe that the more drunk you became, the closer to this God you became. And so they would worship this God of wine. The Roman counterpart would be a God named Bacchus. And you will discover that during the worship of Bacchus, they were very perverse and wicked ungodly things that they would do, again, under the influence of alcohol. There's actually a story. I was listening to somebody speak about this Bacchus, and they, there's a temple, at least there was up to so many years ago, in uh, Lebanon near Beirut, where there's still some form of a temple that's erected to this god Bacchus. And in the center of the temple floor, there's a hole, like a pit. And that pit, the purpose of that was so as the worshipers were consuming so much food, gluttony, and being intoxicated with drunkenness, they would go to the center of the floor, regurgitate everything they just consumed, right? So that they could then continue in their worship unhindered. So they would literally stuff themselves, get so drunk, go into the middle of the floor, throw all of that up, go back to drinking and partying and carrying it on because this is how we worship our God. And the gods, their gods were supposedly pleased by this. There was also individuals that were temple prostitutes that were involved in these acts of worship. And so can you see, almost instantly, as Paul's speaking to this new church in Ephesus, which is a Roman colony with cultural indications here. And by the way, some of these people in Ephesus came out of that very form of worship. And they're coming into this Christian faith. And some of them most likely think, well, if we worshiped this God this way, we worship now this God, we can just take that worship and bring it over here. And is this really hard for us to imagine? We do this today. There's so many things. And and some of it's fine. It's just culture. But a lot of cultural things we do in the church came from non-biblical roots. Uh, choirs wearing robes, for example, right? It talks about robes in the Bible, but there's no biblical command that thou shalt wear robes when thou sings in a choir to me in church. But why do we do it? Because culture. Meeting in a building like this versus a home or a smaller room off the side of a house. These are cultural things that began to be introduced in the 300s and 400s and the 500s. As as the Roman Empire began to embrace Christianity, some of these things began to mix over. They're not intrinsically wrong, some of them. But we can see how we tend to take one and take the other and take this and a little bit of that. And so maybe Paul's writing to the church of Ephesus saying, listen, you cannot mix drunkenness and worship of our God. 
They cannot go hand in hand. Do not be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. And so Paul is making a cultural or a religious comparison here. Again, he goes on in verses 19 through 21. If you want to note that there, he gives some biblical examples of what worship should look like. What should worship look like in the church? It's not to be consumed with drunkenness. It's to be these things. And actually, Ephesians chapter 4 through really the end of the book deals with practical lifestyle Christianity. How we live, how we treat one another, how we interact in our relationships and how we worship. All these things are kind of talked about here. So again, we see that Paul's not just using an illustration or analogy here. I believe he's speaking specifically to a cultural issue in the church. Or at least one that he believes could become an issue in the church. And so again, we are not to mix these two things. You can't mix drunkenness and worship of our God. Also, Paul, if you're taking notes, had to address this issue to the Corinthian church. Again, a very pagan, idolatrous silly city that were being very silly, if you want to say it that way. Um, they were involved in some of these things. And so Paul had to warn them and, and teach against this. If you're taking notes, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 20 through 22. Chapter 11, verse 21. So 1 Corinthians 10, 20 through 22. Chapter 11, verse 21. They were actually using the Lord's Supper we just celebrated the communion here recently. They used the Lord's Supper as an excuse for gluttony and drunkenness. The Bible says they were coming early and gorging on the food and drinking up all the wine to the point when they got to the Lord's table, they would be drunk and stuffed. And these poor people who would come into the dinner, they had nothing to eat because the People that were there early consumed it all. So it was actually causing division in the church. The Lord's Supper, something supposed to unite the church, was dividing the church. And Paul actually says, I don't encourage you in this. You are not doing right in this. You are misusing what's supposed to be honoring to God for an excuse for drunkenness. And so Paul is correcting them. He's rebuking them. So why the difference? Because the followers of Christ even in the founding of the church, were called to stand different. In everything. In everything. There should be a difference from believers to those that don't know Christ. Now let me just pause here and say, this is, should be true of our marriages. This should be true of how we raise our children. This should be true of how we spend our finances. This should be true of how we live our lives. Our lives should be a marked difference from the world around us. And unfortunately, statistics show that that's not always the case. And in fact, statistics show that the life of a born-again Christian in America and the life of a non-Christian in America, when they're polled as far as values and interests and hobbies and desires and all these other areas and how the things are going in their lives, they've come to find out there's not a huge difference. And so people have seen that evidence and said, well, this means that it really doesn't matter whether you know Christ or not. We're pretty much all the same. And I would argue kind of different conclusion. Either those are undiscipled Christians who don't know how they should be living and God's grace is for them and they can be restored, or they're not believers at all. They just think they're believers, think they're Christians. But see, Paul's point here is this. There should be a difference between when these pagans go to worship and when we worship the true and living God. So Paul makes it clear, drunkenness is a sin. 
So why is drunkenness forbidden in Scripture? Why does Scripture so clearly teach that drunkenness is forbidden? We should note that both in Old and New Testaments, drunkenness is seen as wicked, sinful, destructive, and damaging. In Ephesians 5.18, we read it already in the King James, but another translation says this, Be not drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Some of your translations as you're reading this, it uses the word dissipation. Be not drunk with wine, which leads to dissipation or is dissipation. That means to live without restraint, no control, just free to do whatever you feel like, regardless of whether it's sinful or not. Some other passages that speak to the destructive power of drunkenness. Proverbs 20 and verse 1. And in this translation, it uses the word beer, but it could just be another version of strong drink. Okay? So obviously they didn't have like Budweiser in Proverbs. Okay? But um, this is just a modern translation of this idea. Proverbs 20 and verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker. And beer a brawler, whoever is led astray by them is not wise. What does it mean to be led astray by them? You're consumed by them. You give control over to them. You've given over to drunkenness. This has control over you. First Peter 4.3 For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. So again, now what's he comparing? Christians, believers to these Gentiles, these pagans. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, speaking to their religious practices. There are a few lists of the behaviors of the ungodly in the New Testament, and among them we read multiple times of the sin of drunkenness. It's listed right there with other sins that we would look at and say those are horrible things to commit, and it's always listed in those lists. So drunkenness all throughout scripture to be consumed and given over to alcohol as a controlling force is never seen in a positive light. There's never an example where you can point to someone being drunk and a good outcome came of that. We actually read, what, what did Noah do as soon as he got off the boat? Great Noah was consumed and became drunk and led to some very negative consequences, not only in his life, but in the life of his family. So we see this is never a positive, encouraged thing in Scripture. Now, to give fairness to Scripture, we have to address all of Scripture. Amen? Now, we can't just take our understanding or our view and say, okay, I'm going to only pick out the verses that fit what I think. So let's be fair to Scripture. If we're fair to Scripture, we have to acknowledge that there are verses that either permit or say it's okay to drink wine. So now we have to stop and say, okay, so, so it's clear, page, cover to cover in Scripture, drunkenness is wrong. But it seems to say in other places that consuming wine is okay. And so what do we do with that? How do we wrestle with that? Well, let me give you some thoughts on this. We do read verses that permit the drinking of wine. There are also, however, warnings against the drinking of something the Scriptures call strong drink. So in Scripture, there's two basic categories of alcoholic beverages. There's wine and strong drink. And really, we don't know, because I wasn't there, and I've heard all different kinds of views on this, the level of alcohol in each. We don't know for sure, okay? 
let's just put that, all kinds of things have been written about it. Lots of educated guesses and assumptions. The idea is the wine of biblical times was less alcohol content than strong drink. That's where we can really draw a conclusion, okay? Strong drink, heavy alcoholic content. And we'll give you some examples of what those words mean. Wine was alcoholic, but at a lesser content, okay? If you read an article and they say, well, the wine of this day had this much and that much, and we don't know for sure. But we do know from Scripture, one is obviously more alcoholic content, and one is strongly discouraged. Strong drink is constantly discouraged in Scripture. Wine is permitted. Strong drink seems to always be discouraged. Okay? So some have suggested that the wine in the Bible is just merely grape juice. This is something maybe you've heard or you grew up with this teaching. It's just, it wasn't real wine. It's just grape juice. Uh, it doesn't say that in Scripture. So this is where we have to be fair to Scripture. I don't consume alcohol, but it would be wrong for me with my personal conviction to go to Scripture and pick out only the verses that say we shouldn't get drunk and then say because of that you can't drink and now it's a law. I have to go to Scripture and say what does Scripture actually say? I do not believe the Bible or the wine in the Bible was merely grape juice. I do believe it contained some level of alcoholic content. Now it is true that the Hebrew word for wine does stand or mean mixed wine. Mixed wine. So it's the idea of mixing it or watering it down is the idea. Strong drink is referred to as unmixed wine. So there's the idea of it's a higher alcoholic content. Okay? And if you ever, you know, grew up in that lifestyle, you know that a lot of bars, the later the night goes, the more water they add to the drinks, right? Because they want to save money and not give you as much alcoholic content. So the idea here that when you mix the wine, it's not as strong as unmixed wine, which is more of a strong drink. Uh, again, the wine in the Bible also leads to intoxication, right? They were able to be intoxicated with the wine in the Bible. That means it's not just grape juice. And so again, we're not diving all into that. Every example of new wine and old wine and all of that, just know those are the basic principles. So it's more than grape juice. But also, some have suggested it's less alcoholic content in wine of the Bible than wine today. Wine today would have more alcoholic content is the assumption, okay? Again, we don't know for sure. This is why we can't go into it with a black-white kind of a mindset, okay? What's the, it's it's, it's got to be more of a personal conviction based on the leading of Scripture and the Spirit. So, to be fair to Scripture, wine was used during the Passover meal. Not grape juice, but wine. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.23 to use a little wine instead of just water. Uh, this, again, is the idea that if they lived in an area where there was poor drinking water, his stomach was bothering him, and Paul says, drink a little wine. Now, here's the thing. I've heard that verse used so many times from people that are like, well, it's not a big deal that I have six or seven drinks a night because the Bible says Paul told Timothy to drink some wine. Okay. First of all, it actually specifically says a little wine, okay? Paul wasn't like, you can have seven or eight bottles, like, and it'll be fine, okay? Now, Timothy won't be feeling much with his stomach at that point in, a, in one way, but in another way, very much so, okay? So what's the idea here? The water is bad to drink. It can make you sick. So drink a little wine to calm your stomach. That's the idea, okay? So we see this in Scripture as encouraged. Again, even the Good Samaritan uh, and that parable uses wine for medicinal purposes. 
So there were all kinds of purposes and uses for wine, some to consume in small amounts, celebratory. It was used in the Passover meal. Um, some have asked, well, why don't we use wine in our Passover or not a Passover, or in our communion, because at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, they used most likely wine. And the answer is very simple. One, we are not committed to only use wine and unleavened bread. Uh, we can use juice and a cracker or other things. You're just symbolizing it. So the bread and the drink, it doesn't literally have to be those two things. The other aspect of this is because people have struggled with alcohol and because people have addictive issues with that. There would be very irresponsible for us as a church to willingly and encouragingly put alcohol before somebody that should have no business drinking alcohol, even in a small amount. That would be irresponsible of us, immature of us, and leading somebody potentially, as we're going to talk about, into even deeper and greater sin. And so that's why we don't do that. We're not required to do it, and we choose not to because we believe it's wise. And so here we see some examples of the Bible saying wine is okay. So let's Wrap up for a second, and then we'll give some practical application. So if the Bible says that drinking wine is okay, and as long as I don't get drunk, then I am good to go. As long as I don't get drunk, drinking wine is totally fine, no issues, I'm good to go. Kind of. Kind of. And this is where I want to give some practical encouragement from the Word of God. One more point I would like to encourage you on. Discernment is key. Discernment is key. Let's go to Romans chapter 14. If you're using a Bible provided, page 800. So Romans chapter 14. I'm going the wrong way. Romans chapter 14. Discernment is key. So look at Romans chapter 14, verse 10. Familiar passage, not in context dealing with wine, but I believe we see a principle here that we can apply to this topic as well as many other topics that we come across in our day and age. So Romans 10, or Romans 14 and verse 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 11 of Romans 14. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. We sang about that this morning. What a day that will be. Amen. Verse 12. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. You are not going to give an account for someone else. That's the idea. When you stand before Christ, not to weigh your salvation, that is settled and finished in the cross, you will give an account for the life that you've lived in Christ, the things that you've done for Christ. You will give an answer and an account for those things. Now, I believe it will be a place of great reward, and we'll cast those rewards right back at Jesus' feet. But this is key in understanding how we live our life day to day needs to be governed with the idea of what would God have me to do? How would I please the Lord. Verse 13. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now this is dealing with, again, in context, the eating of meat that was sacrificed to idols. The Gentiles would buy this meat, discounted most likely, and they would consume it. 
Jewish believers that are converting to Christ would look at that and say, we can't eat that because it was sacrificed to idols. That's wrong. And so Gentiles, believers that were coming out of that pagan faith, Jewish believers coming out of their background would argue and fight over this in the church. Can I eat this? Is this okay? And it sounds silly to us, but it was an issue in the church and it was causing division. And so Paul is giving a principle to handle this issue. He's saying the meat is fine. Okay. That's really what the conclusion is. The meat is fine because he, he concludes there's no such thing as an idol. So he's like, it's not, it doesn't become demonic because it was supposedly given to an idol. That's a piece of wood. So it's fine. However, the key is not, do I eat the meat or do I not eat the meat? The key is how the person who I'm eating this with views it. That's where we're going here. Okay. Goes on to say this, um, verse 15. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably or in love. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. You think you're doing a good thing, but it's really not a good thing. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. And so how do we deal with this issue in our day and age? Well, the Bible says with moderation in small amounts, not unto drunkenness and not unto control, consuming wine is permissible. But discernment is key because we don't live in a bubble. We have relationships and, and we affect and our decisions affect others in our family and in our community. And so two questions I want to give you that you can ask yourself to kind of evaluate where you're at with this, all right? How will this affect others? Your decision to consume alcohol, specifically in the biblical example, wine, or something with smaller alcoholic content, less alcoholic content, your decision to consume that, how will it affect others? We have been given in Christ personal liberty, this is granted to us in the spirit. We have an ability to make some decisions on areas that are not clearly defined in scripture. Whether I do this or whether I don't, we call those personal convictions. Legalism, the problem with legalism is I take personal convictions and I force them on you as biblical dogma or doctrine. And I can't do that. Some of you grew up being told you can't go to the movies. Now, again, if you're a child, that's your parents' call, respect that. But some of you grew into your adulthood and you thought, I can't go to the movies because that's bad. Now, odds are that was because a personal conviction of someone in your life had that view and forced it on you as that you can't do that. And I'm just picking one kind of somewhat silly example where rather what we should have taught people was, yeah, you can go to the movies, but you better be really discerning about what you're putting before your eyes. You see the difference there? One is teaching critical thinking. One is just do what I tell you. And so again, you can watch those movies. But as a follower of Christ, the Bible does not say, thou shalt watch only this rating and down, right? And by the way, the ratings have changed over the last 30, 40 years, if you haven't noticed. What's PG now wasn't PG before, okay? So maybe we shouldn't use Hollywood and secular standards for what we put before our eyes. Maybe we should use a little more discernment than that, a little more wisdom than that. But that's just an example of critical thinking. So how does this affect others? I can do it. But how is it going to affect someone else if I do? In this area, we must ask some evaluation questions. And I, I'm free to give the notes to anybody that wants, because I'm just going to kind of read through these quickly. We're, we're out of time this morning. We must ask some evaluation questions. Will this cause someone else to stumble? 
Will this cause someone else in my area of influence or in my life to stumble? If they see me consuming this, will it encourage them to consume it and lead them down a road that they should never be on because of their own personal issues with this? Is this going to build others up? Is this going to edify someone or is it not? How will this affect my family? That's another question we need to ask. How will this affect my family? Those in my own home. How will people in my culture view me drinking in regards to my testimony? How will people in my day and age view me consuming alcohol in public in comparison to my testimony? And I'm not going to give any answer on these because you need to think about these things. And the Spirit of God will give you leading on these. So these principles, again, can be applied to many areas of our lives. We are called to think about these choices and the decisions we make, not just with alcohol, but a lot of things in our lives that we need to think about. Not only how will this affect others, but how will this affect me? How will this affect me? As we said, drunkenness is a sin and leads to sinful consequences. So in this area, I must evaluate my motives and the effect it will have on me. So how do we evaluate those things? Some simple questions. Why do I want to consume alcohol? Pretty simple question. Why am I even wanting to drink this substance? Am I depending on this substance to give me comfort instead of relying on Christ? There's a movement in our day and age that we just end the day with a glass of wine or whatever because I just need to relax. And I understand that, but if you're going to substance for relief and when you're stressed and not going to Christ first, you are giving that control of your life and you're depending on that. I don't need anything apart from Christ to make me feel peace at the end of the day. Now, is it good to have a nice meal and to sit back and relax? And That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But if I'm going to something, if I'm seeking something out for that comfort, man, then I'm elevating that thing higher than it should be in my life. No matter what it is, a relationship, a substance, a hobby, Christ is number one, period, done. If I'm going to anything else apart from Christ or in place of Christ, that's an idol. And we need to really evaluate that in our lives. Am I doing this under the pressure of others' opinions of me? Am I being led by the fear of man rather than the truth of the Spirit? Am I doing this because I'm fearful of what others will think about me if I don't do this? It's so funny. Peer pressure doesn't go away when we become, become adults. It changes, but it doesn't go away. Do others in my life tell me that drinking is becoming habitual? Do others in my life that love me and care for me tell me that my drinking is becoming habitual? Am I ending every day with a drink or two and that may lead to a pattern that is hard to break down the road? Am I ending every day with just a couple of drinks to just, you know, I just need that. I'm telling you from experience of talking to somebody that into their 60s did that. And you know, for like 15 years before they quit, they said, I don't even like it anymore, but I have to do it. And it started with just a couple at the end of the day, every day. Then it was a couple more, then it was a couple more. So again, how is that in your life? Where would you gauge your answer to that question? Yes, biblically speaking, drinking wine in small amounts, in moderation, not unto drunkenness, is allowed and not sinful in and of itself. But again, discernment is vital in our lives. I want to end with a verse that I pray will give you encouragement. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 24. 
Because some of you, when I started this talk, you were like, well, I already know where he's going. I've already made my decision. I'm good with it. You're not going to change my mind. And to be honest, I really don't care what the Bible says because it's not a big deal to have a drink or two. And some of you started with that mindset. I understand that because I've sat in church services and chapels when I was in college and the guy would start talking and I'm like, mm, I know where you're going. I'm good. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 24, the Corinthians said to him, I have the right to do anything. Paul says, they said to him, I have the right to do anything. Paul says, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. You can do this, but why and when and how often and to what degree? Those are questions I really would encourage you to think on. Our church's stand, let me close with this. Our church's stand is to encourage you to abstain from alcohol because of its tendency to lead to addictive behavior and control over your life. However, it is a matter of personal liberty and conviction. It is not a command. We do not tell you you have to do this. Our encouragement is that you would abstain from alcohol as a regular drink in your life because of its addictive tendencies. However, again, if you see the biblical principles and you're applying those and you drink in moderation, small amounts, not unto drunkenness, then we're fine. That's a personal area of conviction and we're good with that. But that's our church's encouragement to you. But let me take it a step farther. The reason our church's conviction is that because our church's greater conviction is no substance should have control over you apart from the Holy Spirit. You should not give yourself to anything. So this is not just with alcohol. It could be with any substance. If there's something in your life that has more control over you than it should, and the Spirit of God is being second place, you need to get rid of that thing by God's grace. And let me close with this. Maybe you're here today, and alcohol has a hold over you. No one else knows it. You do it secretly, privately. Everyone thinks you're fine. But for years, maybe decades, alcohol has had a hold over you and you hate it. You don't want to live under that anymore. You see what it's doing to you and to those in your life. Then let me tell you this, by God's grace and through Christ, he can set you free from that. It does not have to hold on to you. I don't care about any cycle of history where my parents were and my grandparents were. Jesus is a chain breaker. The chains of addiction that lasted in your life don't have to last any longer. So if you will choose to say, Lord, I'm giving this to you. Give me strength. Set me free. Maybe you'd come this morning and bend a knee and say, Lord, I need to give this up in your name because you will be glorified in this. I, I promise you, if you will make that decision, he will strengthen you. It will be difficult. It will take work. But we're here for you. We'll walk with you. If that's you and you want help, we'll walk with you. We'll encourage you. We'll be there for you. And I know we're talking about alcohol, but this is true of any area of our lives. So maybe you would come and say, Lord, give me victory over this. I need to be set free from this. Maybe you're here today and you think, God, oh, it's not really a big deal. I don't think it's a big deal in my life. Then maybe you would just take time to evaluate those questions. Lord, why do I do this? How is this affecting others? How is this affecting me? And maybe you come to the end of that conclusion and say, you know what? I'm good. It's in moderation. It's, it's not all the time. It's not habitual. I'm giving it to God. I have, he has control over me. And that's the personal area that you come to. But let's never be afraid to ask the tough questions of ourselves, to ask God, am I honoring you in this above all things? Would we pray as we bow our heads and prepare for invitation?
as you bow your heads right there where you are, I do want to, again, just, just share if there's anyone here as we prepare to have a time of response to what God is doing, if you're here today and you know, you don't have to even be convinced, you know that alcohol has a hold over you, then I want you to know that seeing it firsthand in so many people's lives, you can be set free from that. It does not have to hold you. That any chain, any bondage that is on you right now, God will overcome through Christ by the working of the Spirit. There is no stronghold that he can't have victory over. But the question is, are you ready to surrender that thing? Are you ready to give that thing up? If you're ready and you're at a point of brokenness, you can cry out to him and say, God, I need your strength. If you know Christ is your Savior, he is with you. If you don't know Christ is your Savior, then you can receive him today, confessing your sin, repenting of your sin, turning from it, and trusting in Christ. Maybe you're here today and there's another stronghold in your life that we didn't even really touch on. Maybe there's some form of addiction in your life that nobody else knows about. Maybe it's something that you fear. Maybe it's the approval of others. You just live under constant fear of that. Maybe it's something to do with your diet or your food and you eat or don't eat because of things that you feel. And maybe it's things you look at that you know you shouldn't be and you're, you hate it, but it's something that's there and you just can't seem to get away from it. Any stronghold can be broken in Christ. Nothing can overtake you when you are his. And so maybe you'd come this morning and just ask, God, give me wisdom in this, strength in this. Help me to trust in you. And for everyone else here that is in a different place, and they're, we're not better than anyone else. It's just a different place. And maybe for us, we would pray for wisdom. We've made a decision on this issue, but maybe we really haven't asked those tough questions. And now we want to do that and make sure that we're honoring in all things. Father, in all these things, we thank you for your grace. We're all growing. We're all learning. We're all on a journey. There's no one perfect. We all need grace because we all fall. We all fall short. So thank you for your grace and your forgiveness and your mercy. And again, may you be glorified in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? I know it's a tough topic to talk about, but I pray that God has given you wisdom direction in all of this. And I pray that if you feel led to come and pray for whatever reason, maybe you'd come and pray and say, God, strengthen me in this. Give me wisdom in this. Set me free from this. Whatever it is, would you respond as we worship him in response this morning?